0: In order to use a pickleball paddle in a USA sanctioned tournament, the paddle has to meet certain specifications. Today, I talk with Carl Schmitz, who is the Director of Equipment Standards for USA Pickleball. You'll hear how the paddle manufacturers are pushing the limits of what they're doing with paddles, and as a result, the changing and evolving process for the evaluation committee. Let's get to the intro to hear from Carl. Welcome to the Pickleball Fire Podcast, where it's all about pickleball. Today, I'd like to welcome to the Pickleball Fire Podcast, Carl Schmitz. How are you doing today, Carl?
1: Very good, Lynn. Thank you for having me.
0: I do want to go ahead and start off the Pickleball Fire Podcast today with kind of your background story, how you got started with pickleball, and how long ago that was.
1: Uh, sure. Yeah, it's it's not a long story. I was acquainted uh, to the sport back in the end of 2014. I had been a quite an avid rackets athlete through most of my life, but for, uh, for the last 15, 20 years, I'd been more focused on a career in, in corporate, in technology. Once I semi-retired in 14, discovering this sport, it was just an accident. It was at a, a friend's friend's place at a resort and there were my wife and I heard something outside and and we went outside and discovered this sport where people were just knocking the ball over a tennis net that had been striped. And uh, upon returning to our home in in Oregon, we picked up a starter set wooden paddles and uh, found a, a local unused tennis court and started knocking the ball around. We ended up discovering that there were a couple of different venues with temporary setups. We started playing. Um, We ended up, we wintered down south, down in Arizona, and discovered that there was a 300 plus member pickleball club right in our backyard, just outside of Scottsdale and Fountain Hills. So we joined the club and and again, became addicted (laughs) at that point. When I first started, I swore I wasn't going to go into competition. I didn't want to go down the, the rabbit hole like I had back in my racquetball days. But I was asked to backfill in a a senior championships up here in Oregon. And after that, I couldn't get enough of it. So I ended up playing tournaments almost continuously through 2016, to the point to where I I finally got my bump to 5-0. I was quite proud of that. But shortly after, after that, I ended up getting more and more involved on the business side of the sport. One- My my wife and I started working very closely with uh, the local parks and rec department and got them to strike the tennis courts, and we uh, immediately started building up a fairly large club here locally. But I also got involved with the first attempt at creating a uh, professional pickleball tour. Uh, This was called the Professional Pickleball Federation. And the board hired me as uh, the president at the time, and we started off with the program then. We unfortunately didn't make it more than uh, through the end of that year for a number of different reasons, which may make for a good topic some other time. But um, I continued on in the sport on a couple of different fronts. Um, In 2016, I've been brought on by the USAPA to help create the first first group that was focused on the equipment specifically, the rules and standards, tests, and, and specifications. And we called that the Equipment Evaluation Committee. We reported up into the director of competition at the time. And since then, it's been a ever-growing program, which um, I'll, I'll outline in detail here in a few minutes, but I'll, I'll just take a beat here to see you know, if there's any anything you'd like to know uh, further about my background there.
0: Yeah, it's apparent that you've been very involved in the sport and and certainly are addicted. And I'm really curious about the equipment standards. Is this kind of when people wonder if they have an approved paddle for tournament play? Is that part of what you're doing in terms of determining the standards?
1: Exactly. Um, so the the approvals process has been in place for you know, well over a decade, but it has evolved substantially. It started with one, one board member in their garage with a series of tests that they felt were you know, relevant to ensuring that the sport was played to a certain level or, or that really their key strategy there was to uh, maintain the integrity of the sport. And by that, it was a sport that was largely driven by finesse versus power. And key elements that were, were measured were friction on the paddle face and uh, deflection. And the interpretation of that deflection was the concern for a trampoline effect. In 2016, we transitioned from that testing in a garage to a, a formal testing facility called National Testing Systems in Chesapeake, Maryland, right outside of Baltimore. The process that, the way we defined this process was a, a crawl, walk, run approach. So the initially, you know, what we really wanted to do is tighten up some of the processes around the tests that were being conducted for those attributes I described, the, the spin that could be created off the face of the paddle, how much return of power the the paddle face might create. Those were the the two primary things. And of course dimensional requirements, the paddle couldn't exceed 24 inches, length plus width, et cetera. And so the that first phase, that crawl phase was what we focused on uh, in terms of policy and and how the specifications were written. And of course, for a paddle to be used in sanctioned competition, it would need to meet all of those criteria.
0: All right. So I think a lot of people really wonder about the standards and if they're going to play in tournaments and if you're not playing in tournaments, your paddle doesn't necessarily have to meet those standards, but we really do all, I think, all want a level playing field, even if we're involved in recreational play. So talk a little bit more in depth about the friction piece, because that seems to be where the paddle gets its spin, isn't it?
1: That's correct. And uh, I think that spin has really been an increasing focus over the last few years. The the first uh, approach at at maintaining some measurability and control over that was a a roughness test. And that essentially measures the peaks and valleys of the the face of the paddle. We use what's called a steret meter for that. And it has a, we've got a defined um, series of tests that are driven by, by ASTM standards, which is, excuse me, uh, American standards and testing measurements. And so This first test uses something, the equivalent of a stylus, an optical stylus that runs across the the face of the paddle and measures these peaks and valleys. That type of roughness-induced friction, of course, is the um, easiest way to describe the interface between the paddle and the ball and and what it could do to it. That was implemented in, I think, 2015, 2016, and has been a pretty dependable way of measuring just what type of impact that paddle face might have. In 2019, we started to see an increasing number of, oh, and by the way, that paddle test, or excuse me, that friction test was more or less developed to address the irregularities, which were a result of uh, peel-ply surface finishes and some of the graphics that were being applied to paddles. Those were not really being done with the intent of increasing friction, but there was a result of that, and again, these were just natural irregularities in the the faces of the paddles, so given the materials that were chosen. In 2018 and 2019, we started to see paddle faces that were designed with roughness in mind, and so this test became increasingly important. And so, the and by design, they would start to push the the envelope uh, and, and try to reach that. The limits of that specification. And we saw several that came quite close to it, and they've, they've been successful in that realm. In late 2019 and early 2020, we started to see paddle manufacturers experiment with surface finishes, and by that, paints and, and coatings and other things that also could introduce friction. Um, friction, of course, is a result of basically molecular exposure between two surfaces. And so these paints would increase the number of of contact points or molecules that would interact with the ball and could substantially increase uh, the the friction uh, induced to the ball, even though the surface might feel soft or smooth to the touch. So to address that, we had developed a, a more sophisticated test um, called a coefficient of friction. This is a, very much a physics-driven test. And uh, the way it's executed is a, a sled with a, a material on its on the, the bottom side of the sleds weighted at eight pounds is pulled across the face of the paddle. And depending on the amount of force required to pull it across, it yields uh, a, a number, which is a ratio in terms of the force required to to pull it across that is the coefficient of friction and so we have a, an upper threshold of that which helps us identify paddles which may use paints or other finishes that can induce friction but still may feel smooth to the touch
0: now you mentioned those finishes came about in 2019 2020 what else are you seeing now or expecting to see because i'm i'm wondering if if you're really out in front of the science in terms of you know the testing or if you're looking to see what the manufacturers are doing and then reacting to it,
1: it's a combination actually. and this is a timely question because what we've seen um, here in the last uh, six months, seven months or so is paddle manufacturers that are considering new configurations and uh, by that an open throat type configuration, which is has been the same evolutionary path that we saw in tennis and racquetball and squash. It's ruled out in badminton the way that the rules are written there. But in those first three sports, we've seen that same natural evolution. And so we, knowing that these paddles were being developed and that the the simplest way to interpret the rules. Uh, one of the rules states that there there can't be holes in the paddle face. There's not a, a sports engineer on the planet that would call an open throat a hole. It's uh, it's basically two two shafts that are supporting the hitting face. And so our concern there though wasn't because that was a a, a possible friction inducing hole because it clearly isn't our concern is that new configuration may introduce so much flexibility that it would it would affect what's called the coefficient of restitution or the return of power to the not unlike what you saw when graphite shafts were introduced in golf and so to address this we've been we developed a beam flex test to get in front of this and we're right in the, the middle of a process of writing what's called a, a notice of proposed rulemaking that we'll be sending out to the, the manufacturers to let them know that this test will be put in place here over the next couple of months uh, to help address these new configurations that are coming out and to help contain the the amount of potential flexibility that a paddle may introduce to the to competition.
0: Now, have any of these open throat paddles been yet approved?
1: They have been. There are two that, that have been approved probably within the last four months. You've seen one in competition already. I don't know if it's appropriate to say on the call or not, but I'm, I'll say it. It's uh, the Selkirk Open Throat paddle that Tyson McGuffin's been playing with. And there's another startup paddle manufacturer that has created a, what's called a, a molded or laid up paddle that I think they're already visible publicly on our website at their request. I'm not sure if they're shipping yet.
0: Now, at this point, these are approved paddles. When you have your new testing equipment or or process, will you go back and test other paddles historically?
1: These two, the the way that we've uh, approached this test and uh, that we did with the coefficient of friction test as well, is that we looked at existing paddles that are already were on the market and uh, considered uh, considered okay for competition that they weren't outliers from a performance standpoint that's how we developed the coefficient of friction test and then what we did with this this beam flex test is we looked at 13 millimeter paddles 16 millimeter paddles and we used these two new paddles also in the test so they've already gone through the test and we found that they were actually stiffer than 13 millimeter paddles thus addressing our concern for that hyperflexibility and so we're in good shape you know with those but we're putting in the test because or are putting in place the test so that we can address these uh, the potential of, of new product introductions down the line that may have this configuration.
0: And then are there any other new things in terms of configurations going on? Because I know we talked mostly about friction and not so much about deflection, which you might want to actually further define a bit.
1: Sure. So deflection was a a result of the original board's concern for the paddle having a, what would be called a trampoline effect and, and would almost be the equivalent of a string bed that you see in tennis and racquetball and squash. That string bed, of course, stores and returns the belief at the at the time of the creation of this this specification, was that a paddle face may do the same. And today, the deflection has an upper limit of five thousandths of an inch. So, essentially, what we're looking for in the characteristic of a paddle is a a rigid, fairly solid hitting surface that does not deflect and create a huge amount of dwell time, nor uh, return of energy back to the ball. Now, j- but just to extend or extrapolate your question a little bit in terms of other things that we're seeing clearly optimizing aerodynamics so that the, the paddle may swing through the air, maybe a bit more efficiently, either creating more power or saving energy, which means if a player swings a thousand times over an hour, A one to 2% savings in energy might mean something by the end of that hour. It's like fuel economy in cars or in racing. In this case, we've seen a a paddle come to market. It was just announced a few weeks ago, and that's the one shot arrow shot, which has vents along the side, which are intended to basically uh, relieve a little bit of air pressure on the face of the paddle so that it swings through the air more quickly. Initial interpretation of a paddle configuration like that, not unlike some interpretations of the first open throats, is that, hey, that's a hole on the face of the paddle. Our review of that design when it was first um, submitted was that, well, in fact, it's it's really not, A, intended to increase friction, which is what our, our real concern is, and B, it's off at the edges of the paddle. If you were to remove, for example, the bumper guard, then that paddle would just be, would just have scalloped edges. And that, that doesn't violate any rule. And again, back to, you know, the way the rules are looked at, there's both the literal reading of the rules, but there's also understanding what the intent was of of the rules. And so when someone does bring us a, a new configuration, and this arrow shot is a good example. We have to 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 look at it the design is it a direct violation of the rules or is it a a violation of the intent of the rules and and if that's the case, then we uh, get together with uh, the manufacturer and, and talk through it and there may be a design tweak made to address that, but it's i I think as much as as uh, new materials can drive innovation out there today, part of innovation is related to What's read between the lines? Does it explicitly state that they can't do something the, the open throat is a good example. We don't explicitly state there is no open throat, but our concern with it was the flexibility of it. it it's important to understand the, the difference between those two things. We see new paddles come to market and, and how they're evaluated for design and, and what impact they might have on the, the, the nature of the sport itself.
0: You talk about new paddles coming to market. If you think about it, I think you've been in your position there since 2016. And I know when I started playing pickleball, even in 2018, there really were not that many paddle choices. You guys must be going crazy with all the manufacturers now getting into the pickleball space.
1: Yeah, it's you know, that's so true. So just to uh, put that into number, we've seen more new paddles and more new manufacturers in the last 18 months than we had in the previous 5 years. And the it's shocking just how much activity there is out there and so you know, what where we'd seen let's say anywhere between 150 to 180 paddles submitted on an annual basis up through 2019 and mid 2020. This year, we've seen over, just in the first nine months of 2021, we've seen close to 270 new paddle submissions. So it's 3x the the run rate that we'd seen before.
0: How do you keep up with all that?
1: It's challenging. Just in the first couple of days this week, I received, I think, close to 10 paddles that I need to evaluate, write up a, a summary review on it. Examples or samples of these paddles are also sent at the same time to three of my colleagues, as well as to, to the labs on the East coast for testing. So it, the process is, it's pretty well put together and it's, it seems to be scaling. Okay. But we're, we, at some point we may need to expand operations to help efficiently process these and in a timely way as well, because the manufacturers want the feedback as quickly as possible. And with that many paddles to handle, it's it can be challenging. And of course, our labs on the East Coast they're um, they're well known in the sporting industry, but they also serve as a key testing site for Department of Defense contractors. And as you can imagine, some of the testing on the sporting side may may not always be prioritized. So we have to stay on top of that.
0: Now, to this point in the podcast, we've talked about equipment standards testing some of the science but you also do something more on the fun side Tell me a little bit about the pro pickleball media company that you have
1: Sure yeah th- this was basically a outcropping or a, a result of the shutdown when we, we shut down the professional pickleball Federation one of the key things that I tried to put in place with that was a, a media capability live streaming these events so this was the, the first first attempt to live stream these pro events we did the first event was at the lakes at marching with club in in palm desert we had to another tournament at brigham the same side of, of toc which was held there a few months later and then uh, right here in my backyard in Bend, Oregon, there was a pro event. And in all four of those events, those were essentially the first occurrences of live streaming save the US Open, which was, well, actually that was recorded and, and broadcast later on as well. So these were the first, the first a- attempts at live streaming. I felt it was very important you know, to create a, a real-time audience and to create content for post-production and distribution later. You know, the work I'd done in that, that first attempt at a pro tour, I retooled it and basically relaunched it in 2018. Most of the, the content then was focused on the, the pro players and largely still, still imagery. But I did live stream a couple of, of tournaments that year. 2019, I must have covered almost every independent tournament created over 600 hours of streamed content of of the pro players. All of that's still resident on uh, ProPippable Media on YouTube. And I'm continuing to cover a couple of the small independent tournaments. Of course, the the pro tours that have formed in in late 2019 and 2020, they built internal capabilities to broadcast theirs. But I still occasionally cover some of the independents like the Seattle Metro Classic a couple of the uh, national pickleball events like the Arizona Open and California Open I've covered. So I still keep my hand in it, but my longer-term goal, I think, is to basically do a uh, a 90-degree turn on this and start to focus more on highlights and some of the analytics and and statistics that I think are still missing in the sport. And that really uh, fits in well with my tech background and the nerd that I am.
0: <laughs> well, I can definitely relate to that. And uh, being a statistician myself, I will look forward to that. So be sure and keep me posted. Yeah, we will do. All right. Anything else we should know about today? I know there's actually a bunch of other things we could talk about, but anything else do you want to make sure and get out there?
1: Uh, sure. I, I think maybe just a, a general outlook from my perspective, given you know, my background in other sports, having you know, witnessed the, the boom and bust of, of racquetball, I, I have a critical eye on tennis. I was a, a varsity tennis player. And I've seen what's happened in that sport. But the key things to remember in racquetball, for example, on, on the equipment side, what we saw was a, that the rackets that <clears throat> were brought to market between the 80s and 90s were only sixty percent the the weight of the former rackets and had fifty percent larger string beds you know, the the resulting impact on the sport was significant. similar numbers for tennis, fifty percent increase in the string bed and the uh, the weight of those of uh, today's rackets versus older rackets is about eighty percent. It took years for in, in tennis to make changes in policy when a substantial you could call them innovations, but they were major game changers. One that stuck was the introduction of the large head pad- or large head racket by Prince in the mid 70s. It took five years for the ITF to implement a restriction on size. So there was quite a long period of time before the governing body responded to that and at least put an upper limit to that. In the early 70s there's an introduction of the spaghetti string in tennis it took 6 years to undo that i think what we've learned from that is that we need to be a bit more nimble and try to stay ahead of the curve in terms of what innovations are are, are being developed what what we're trying to protect we also need to leave enough wiggle room in development for innovation to happen as well so that not paddles are all not the same so that a new manufacturer might consider coming into the sport and uh, introducing a, a differentiated product. And there's a, a couple paddle manufacturers out there that are really doing a great job on this. And where I was headed with this then I mean, was that I'm super excited about the reality behind major manufacturers that that have already come into the sport, like Wilson and, of course, Head. Prince is in the sport. Onyx has been in the sport for some time. But we're seeing, we'll see over the next couple of quarters, some, a continuation of some real giants in the sporting industry. And it, it's super exciting to see that. Clearly, it, it validates the sport as, uh, as high growth from a brand name standpoint. And the potential impact that will have you know, on, on the growth of the sport is significant. It will
0: definitely be interesting to see how things change over the years because they certainly will. But today, I really want to thank you for being on the Pickball Fire podcast, Carl. Really interesting about paddles and the specifications and really what that means to us players and, and actually playing the game. So thank you so much for coming on today.
1: Again, uh, thank you for having me. then. <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to the Pickleball Fire podcast. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to give it a five-star review on Apple iTunes.